This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, an awful lot of walking, mastering pacing in speculative fiction. So it's been a while since we did a straight-up writing technique episode, so here we are. As you've probably guessed from the title, the episode is about pacing. Uh, We've done several episodes about tension and suspense, and about sentence structure in the past, and all of those things influence how pace comes across in fiction. Yes. This time, though, we are specifically looking at how pace determines whether your reader will keep reading, and how to manipulate it to make sure that they do. So let's get into it. Yeah. First of all, there's a lot of difference of opinion. So one person's too fast to follow is someone else's slow and stodgy. Yes. Now, this is further complicated by different paces, which suit different genres, or they appear to. Yeah. In fact, there's probably very little difference in how different genres are paced, but they may make you feel as though the pace has been trimmed exactly for that book. So, for example, the very clever plotting of Pride and Prejudice makes it read as swiftly as a spy thriller, unless you're someone who has difficulty with Jane Austen's language, of course. Uh, Whereas huge tomes like the Lord of the Rings trilogy should be ponderous, but actually move at a decent clip despite being bloated with songs, side stories, legends, and many, many meal descriptions. Um, (laughs) Again, unless you can't access Tolkien's language. And this is uh, no aspersions if you're someone who finds that that style of either of those authors that we've used as examples don't suit you. Yeah. Um, that's that's fine. There are writers who write, and I just look at them and think, I can't read that. <laughs> yeah. So everyone's got someone. But um, Conversely, you might read Fifty Shades of Grey. And yeah, I know this is a weird example, but bear with me. And find that despite not being an especially long book, and it really isn't, and it has a very simple, accessible language, that it really drags. Yes. Honestly, this was the case for me. As um, a member of library staff, we were doing a course on basically understanding genre and, and presentation and stuff. And the challenge was to read a book you would not normally read. And I got assigned to a Mills and Boone and the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, <laughs> which was not a great day for me. So I have read the first two Fifty Shades of Grey books. And the first one was just the first 60% was an exhaustive description of Anna's day from beginning to end, from the moment she woke up till she went to bed. Um, and I, it, it didn't, to me, in my opinion, convey the growing sexual tension you would expect in a novel of that subject matter. Yes. So I found it really dragged. Having said that, lots of people said, that, including my sister, have flown through it and really enjoyed it. So... Yeah. It's a matter of taste. (laughs) Um, It is a lot to do with personal opinion uh, and personal preference. Um, If you pick up a book in a genre that you don't like, or you happen across a book in a genre you normally love, but you dislike the book, then of course it's going to drag. Um, But some of this is how the author actually manipulates and varies tension and suspense to provide pace. 
um, you can check out some of our previous episodes um, about that if you're interested. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at how to maintain pace. So maintaining pace in fiction doesn't mean that the narrative stays the same speed. It simply means presenting the narrative in a way that continues to engage the reader. Uh, to um, let's let's do a driving metaphor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Imagine changing gears as you're going up different terrain. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. You might need to change gears, um, but the kind of the pace is going to stay relatively the same. You're not going to really be sort of hopefully actually no one is noticing you know you jolting or starting or stopping or anything like that everything seems smooth but actually there's a lot of mechanics and different movements um, and different gears being used for the different parts of the story that you are at yeah so and basically pace will not stay constant throughout the book but it should be consistent which is obviously what madeline's saying yes um, in its variations so yes you will vary the pace or the speed um yeah. but the actual pace itself remains consistent to what's what's going on in the narrative yeah so at this point you might be going okay i have no idea what you're talking about um so <laughs> consider an action scene now action scenes tend to be and should be shorter than quieter scenes. Now, they don't necessarily feel that way when you are reading them or watching them, but if you counted the words dedicated to each type of scene, you'll probably find that the action scenes have fewer words. They also tend to have things like shorter sentences, uh, less complicated sort of descriptions, etc. Yeah. Um, very few successful birds are Birds. Oh, Very yes, few birds. successful we are birds. birds now. I think you're okay with this subject change. I know it's come out of left field. Um, very few successful books are all calm, introspective scenes or entirely an action scene. Although, you know, Peace Talks by Jim Butcher is yeah. entirely a battle scene from beginning to a No, sorry, battleground. Yeah. It's entirely battle. It's, it's as in as the, name. the title suggests. <laughs> Entirely a battle scene from beginning to end. Um, even in films, it's incredibly hard to sustain viewer interest with only one speed. Ergo, action scenes will be interspersed with quieter scenes and even short descriptive scenes. Yes. Now, where pace does vary via genre um, is the concentration of the different types of scenes that you have. So an action movie or a thriller novel will tend to, surprisingly enough, have more action scenes than a sweeping multi-generational family, say, uh, saga. saga. Sorry. <laughs> a sage story. A sage story. I can't, I can't spell. <laughs> I'm losing my facility with words. Um, an urban fantasy novel will have fewer descriptive scenes in comparison to high fantasy. Uh, again, because, well, with high fantasy, you need more of a sense of setting, because otherwise you can't immerse yourself. Whereas urban fantasy, familiar setting, you don't need it. Yeah. Part of matching the pace to the reader is understanding what the reader expects from the genre of the book you are writing. So, as Madeline was saying there with urban fantasy... Yes, you do need to do some world building, but we have to assume that the reader is familiar with the mundane world as it stands currently, because that's roughly when you're setting it. Yes. Um, and even then, someone is going to find your writing too fast or too slow. Uh, you can't please everyone. Yeah, definitely. 
Okay, so how do you write an engaging pace? We've got a, a number of things we can do here for that, and we're just going to go through and sort of discuss a few of them, hopefully coming up with some examples. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, you can tell that my mind is still very much in that car metaphor, because the first one um, is utilised breathers, but I did I did read utilised breathalysers. <laughs> <laughs> Check the writer is not writing drunk. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's it was uh, Lewis Fitz. Uh, who was it? Who, who basically said, "Write drunk, edit sober." <laughs> Is that Truman Capote? I don't remember. I anyway, don't remember. yes. So quieter scenes, um, and there are many types of these. So when we say a quieter scene, I think some people go, "Oh, I hate writing those scenes." No, you don't. You don't if you've if you've approximated writing half of an actual book, you don't hate writing quieter scenes. What you're thinking of as a quieter scene is not the only type of quieter scene there is. I think the problem is people think with a quieter scene that everything is static and nothing is happening. And that's simply not true. Um I've got I mean, and every so often I check myself because obviously I have to I have plenty of action in Half for Blackthorn, but I also mm. have scenes where I do need to pause a little bit on the action so that the audience knows what the fuck is going on. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and yes, okay, sometimes you can do a quieter scene by cheating, like I've done with Harkon Blackthorn, and you insert a, a memo or a part of a, a diary passage or something like that. Yeah. That's one way of doing it. Um, you can also just say sort of like, I'm bruised and tired or hungover and feeling rather the worse for wear the following morning and then talk a little bit about how the characters themselves are processing what's just happened yeah a quieter scene it's, it's interesting because there's different types of quiet there can be a tense quiet scene for example uh where you have um sort of two characters who've had an argument and they're just sitting quietly in the car together and a lot is being told in the sort of what's happening physically with them um, you can have a quieter scene where you describe something joyful, so a feast, something like that. But there's not a lot of action, and it is just oh, everyone's kind of just taking. We're taking a breather. We're, we've got this lovely feast. We've we're being told about this, that, and the other. You can have a quieter scene where two characters have a heart to heart. Um, it should be noted that a quieter scene will. If you have too much sort of emotional charge, it it stops really being a quieter scene. Um, it's a different kind of <laughs> a different kind of action, as it were. Yeah, that, that's that's fair, and it doesn't necessarily need to be explosive dialogue or whatever for for it to be a different kind of action scene. Yes, uh, but then again, that's that's another way of doing it. Have different kind of action scenes as well, so it yeah. doesn't all have to be car chases and battles, um, or people like having like rabbit. Klingon type sex. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, a sex scene is an action scene. Yeah. Gen well, depending on how you write it, but theoretically, if you're going full frontal, it's an action scene. Yes. And quieter scenes can actually really make the story. It, I remember something a long time ago when I was talking to uh, sort of a, a musician, and uh, they said, Do you know what the most important part of music is? And I said, No. Um, and they said, um, the silences and uh, well i think they said the pauses 
And there is something to be said for that, because you cannot have a crescendo, you know, you cannot have sort of this big finale without having a quieter moment first. It needs to build from something. It creates that incredibly important contrast. It can also involve some of the most captivating um, sort of material, uh, where characters do sort of bear themselves, or, or you really see the most human elements. Um, in fact, last night we were just skimming through the TV and Becoming Elizabeth was on was on the screen. And we had never... I've never really seen it. But there was a quiet scene that was happening at the moment, which was, I believed was with uh, Lord Dudley and his son, where his son has gone missing and he's just come back. And the two of them have this sort of this brief kind of argument. And then it quietens down and they're just talking. And both my partner and I just stopped and were staring. We were absolutely captivated by this quiet but slightly tense scene. And then as everything kind of else progressed, we sort of lost interest. But in that moment, by the closeness of what was happening, by the quietness, by the subtlety, it was so incredibly engaging. And you can absolutely do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, at this point, in, perhaps this is going to sound like an odd example, but if you've read any Anne Rice, you'd think with her subject material, um, mostly vampires, some werewolves and witches and things, um, and a lot of some of the nastier, grittier elements of history mm -hmm. and things like that, you would think that her books would be this action-packed roller coaster of sensation. Mm -hmm. And they are very lush and sprawling, and there's definitely the sensation thing going on. Yeah. Um, but actually, her books are really quite quiet and introspective, despite the subject matter, despite the main characters. All of them essentially have the theme of what is it to be human? And yeah. who is God? Um, and... I wouldn't. She just writes in very many different ways. Lots and lots of quiet scenes, and you only very rarely get an action scene where any like real physical action is happening. Yeah, and yet you know she she obviously did very well out of these books writing in this particular way. Um, and you don't unless you're again somebody who doesn't feel they connect with Anne Rice's books or they don't connect with certain series that she's written. Mm -hmm. Um that you don't feel that they drag. I, I've heard some people say, oh, I didn't like the Vampire Chronicles because it drags, and it, you know, I was expecting more you know, blood and guts, etc. Mm -hmm. Which you do get, but just not on every single page. Um, and it's like, I don't think it's that they're slow. It's I think it's just that for you, you went in expecting something different, which doesn't mean you're wrong. But the way someone else has described it to you is that you know, it's this really intense vampire thing when it is, but it's also all about what does it mean to be human now that you're no longer human? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't think she ever answers that question. <laughs> it's like 14 books deep and it's like, no, the question's never answered. It's still always there. Yeah. And then if you look at something like Good Omens, for example, I mean, season two has just come out. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, you will see lots of examples of, of some, some big sort of things happening, particularly in season one. And yet, when people sort of talk about their favourite scenes, their favourite moments, they tend to be the quiet, introspective moments. The, yeah. the, particularly the small moments where you just see Aziraphale and Crowley just talking with one another. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so other things you can do 
to write an engaging pace. Let's look at the next one. So change the order of events. Um, the in media reus. So you start in the middle of the action and then you work backwards from that. Um, I've said this before when we've done episodes about urban fantasy, but I'm going to say it again. Let's imagine our urban fantasy novel and you start off and the main character, who you haven't even been introduced to yet, is running in peril for their life. And something <laughs> huge and impossible is chasing them and they're just reflecting as they run that they're having the worst day ever and you know it's only Tuesday kind of thing blah 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 blah. sounds and exactly like the Kestrel <laughs> it does and the reader's all worked up and just as it looks like there's going to be some sort of resolution or the character's going to die it cuts off and then you get chapter one and it's earlier that morning yes <laughs> and I've said before this is a cheap trick it is a cheap trick but it works every single fucking time <laughs> Yes. Though, again, it does depend. You do have to deliver, and you have to deliver sort of within a certain amount of time. If you leave it dragging too long, people will get very, very frustrated. Yeah, it's something that the Twilight books... Um, I think, if you remember how Twilight starts, I'd never given much thought to how I would die. That's quite a, a one-line hook, isn't it, at the very beginning? But I don't think the book was originally written like that. I think the book was originally written from Bella's perspective of, you know, I'm leaving, I'm getting on the plane. Yeah. Which wouldn't necessarily immediately hook somebody. Yeah. But by her publisher saying, no, we want a one-page prologue with, that we're not even going to call a prologue. And we're yeah. going to stick it at the front and we want you to hook them and then you can work back. Um, I, I can see why that, that worked very well. Yeah. And it doesn't even need to be dramatic. Um, no. a, a lot of people do actually sort of implement the idea of movement as part of their first chapter. So characters are literally on the move. They're going somewhere. Something is happening. Um, it's very rare that they're just, they just happen to be sitting at home. I mean, you might think, okay, well, hang on, Pride and Prejudice, it starts with them sitting at home, except it doesn't. It starts with a sense of movement. Something has happened. Yeah, they're uh, walking back from church and yeah. Mrs. Bennett has just heard that Mr. Bingley has taken the house in Netherfield. Which yes. is very exciting because he has £5,000 a year. Exactly. So there is a sense of movement, there's a sense of kind of urgency and m physical movement, if done correctly in a sort of, in a book, can actually create that great sense of pace. So even yeah. if it feels like, oh, well, there's nothing, you know, there are no explosives going off, it doesn't matter Obviously, it depends on the kind of story that you're you're telling, but people like it when stories sort of begin with a sense of movement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Try varying your sentence length. Um, <laughs> we've talked about this before, but uh, I mean, Charlotte Bronte. I love Jane Eyre, but I mean, we're looking at you, mate. <laughs> Vary yeah, the sentence length. <laughs> She's, she does fine, and then in certain chapters, it's kind of like the sentence is an entire long paragraph, and try reading Jane Eyre out loud if you don't believe me, and you'll find you run out of air pretty damn quickly. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous exercise if you're asthmatic, I say from experience. <laughs> um. <laughs> but yeah, the sentence length is important. If you, you know, and you can take it down, we've obviously done an entire episode on this, but just kind of as a recap... If you think about you've got a character who is, let's say that they are pondering over something, you know, something that's important. They're not just thinking, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? They're mm -hmm. kind of like 
that person was acting really weird. Why were they acting really weird? And their thoughts kind of spiral out. And you can have quite a long sentence, not too long, but long, not a paragraph length anyway. Yeah. And you can have two or three long sentences in a row as they sort of ponder through things. And what you're doing is you're making the reader experience it. Whereas if they're literally fighting for their life, yeah. then presumably the character, unless they're Byron, is not going to be... Waxing sort of lyrical. Like, waxing <laughs> lyrical about the whole thing, coming up with great big long descriptions and long sentences in their head kind of thing. So it'll be short, sharp, snappy. Yes. Maybe a long one because you've had a pause in, in the immediate action. And then, again, short and snappy again. Yes. Um, it's a generally a good idea to vary your sentence length anyway, just even as you're writing. Um, yeah. But particularly when you are going through fast scenes, you want shorter sentences um, or sort of more shorter sentences, simpler, even more concise. Um, and you want shorter paragraphs. Yeah. I mean, again, it, it depends. And we're not being prescriptive here. So it's a case of what works, works kind of thing. Yes. there but is also, also remember the rule of three. So don't have three sentences in a row or don't have more than three sentences in a row that start with the same word. Yes. Um, and if you do have two long sentences, um, it's a good idea to have a sort of, if it's a, if it is a slower scene, have a mid-length sentence in it. Um, and if it is a fast scene, have a short one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, okay. <laughs> Character in action is another good one. So keep things moving. Yes. Um, don't, particularly during dialogue, don't just stop the entire plot for a chat. <laughs> you know, even when I've got everybody back at the museum and um, they're trying to work out what the creature of the month is, mm -hmm. generally people are doing things. You know, there's tensions in the room between different characters. There's, uh, you know, sometimes there's an unresolved argument between a couple of characters or there's unresolved feelings. And that's all there, and it's, it's being translated into how those characters are acting, as well as what they're saying. So there's two conversations going on at the same time. Yeah, and of course, when we talk about them sort of doing things, that doesn't mean that they physically have to... You've got to describe them, you know, physically doing something. Um, but essentially, something needs to be moving in terms of aiding the story and that can be character development it can be the emotional journey which is moving uh, which is you see very masterfully in harker and blackthorn where sometimes they are they're all just sort of there they're on the sofa or they're in the the apartment and things like that they're stroking the cat you know um recovering from what's happening but there's this this whole fissure of, of sort of tension as as jules describes you know uh between between them all of between them all and, and stuff like that. And this is all adding to the greater emotional plot, which obviously affects the physical plot. Yeah, definitely. So don't think of it too literally as an, right, well, I, I need them to be sword fighting constantly. That is, that's a big no-no. Uh, they shouldn't be doing that. Um, it can be the internal plot that, that you need to keep moving, um, but don't have them go static. Um, and this can be a, a, a sort of a thing of killing your darlings a little bit. Yeah, it can be. And you, you can also move the main plot along as they have necessary dialogue for things like subplot. Yeah. Um, so, for example, with I Rule the Night, I had, you know, Em and Kieran were having difficulty sort of trying to 
put their relationship into action. Yeah. So when they're talking, they're not just standing around talking, they're going for a walk. And when they're hitting s- real snags, they're literally walking uphill in Scotland in the rain. So they're, they're obviously walking against actual difficulties. Yeah. And quite often those things, you know, they'll be walking whatever and they'll have to break off this emotional dialogue that they're having mm-hmm. because a bit of the main plot pops up and then goes, hang on a minute, that's a bit weird. Yeah. Or what have you. Or they'll notice something that is important to the main thing. And I've seen it in spy thrillers as well, where there's a pause, where they're at the airport or something, and they're they're basically waiting to get on a plane, but obviously they're in a state of heightened paranoia or what, or what have you. Mm-hmm. And they're noticing people looking at them in a way that they perhaps wouldn't if they were, if their actions were completely innocent. Yeah. And everything's a little sort of like, which person is suspicious, which which isn't. And they're still sort of trying to have a calm conversation about what to do next. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it can be very, very effective. Once again, these can happen in the quiet moments and they can be some of the things that really define the quiet moments. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, <clears throat> try and... Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a cough or a snort or a combination, but I'll cut it out either way. (laughs) So um, try and be selective uh, with revealing information. Yeah. Um, Honestly, this is one where you go, first of all, look at your prologue if you've got one. I, I kind of have a rule where a prologue, if I write one, shouldn't be more than a page and a half long. However, I do occasionally break that rule. So, for example, for The Dead Travel Fast, where Mm -hmm. you actually get almost a self-encapsulated story as the prologue, um, which is basically almost a diary entry. Um, So it really depends. But what it comes down to is do not tell the reader anything they don't need to do. Need to do? They don't need to know. (laughs) They don't need to know. They don't need to do anything. They don't need to know. So don't tell. If they don't need to know it at this point, don't tell them. That doesn't yeah. mean your prose has to be so sparse that nobody knows where they are and it's just pages and pages of dialogue with no description. Because I think the reader does need a bit of description so they know where they are. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, don't do the prologue thing I see so many new writers doing where they try and put their entire world building into the prologue. Because to be quite honest, if I get halfway through one of those prologues, I'll put the book down. Yeah. Because I don't want to read, you know, your your notes on your world building. I want to be introduced to the world, usually quite quickly, and then allowed to get on with it. And I want you to tell me things without me even realising you're telling me them. Yes. This is really, really important. Um, And it is one of the big sort of problems that I see, particularly with people writing fantasy um, and science fiction. Anything which requires a lot of a lot of world building or a lot of sense of setting, um, but not just those ones. Um, ultimately, you need to have enough questions in the beginning of the story that you are hooking your reader and they want to read on to find out. But if you end, if, if you answer too many of them, first of all, it's stodgy. Uh, everyone's trying to sort of keep up with things whilst they're basically being in, trying to get to terms with, you know, the things that matter. Uh, so think about the fact that if you were introduced to someone and then they literally within half a beat was telling you everything about them, um, yep. y- you would probably actually be quite intimidated. Um, whereas if they, 
if they started, I don't want to hang out with this jerk. Yeah. <laughs> if they started a conversation and perhaps they, they have told you a little bit about them, um, but, you know, they haven't, you haven't, you aren't trying to be told everything. I mean, it would be physically impossible to be trying told everything. Um, it's going to be a lot more sort of interesting because you, you see a direction to go. You're not feeling like you're cramming for an exam, etc. So do think, do, do my readers need to know this now? And if they don't, in order to understand what is happening, ask, can, I, can it be something that's introduced later on? And every now and again, you might know, you might go, okay, they don't need to know it at this moment in time, but this is actually a good moment to bring it up because it will be a natural way of bringing it up. Whereas otherwise I'd have to force it in and that wouldn't work. And that can, you can do that, but you've got to be sort of measure it up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And on a larger scale, if you're writing a series and you know what your endpoint is, you can start telling people what's happening in the series earlier in the book. Not because they need to know, what they will need to know at some point, but it's almost like trip-feeding little bits of information in now rather than going all the way through the series, getting to the last book and going, and all this happens. Yeah. Seriously, don't do so, that. So, <laughs> I mean, there's something... Admittedly, I don't know if this is successful yet, but something I'm doing with Harkon Blackthorn is I've kind of given you answers to how it's all going to pan out already. <laughs> you don't necessarily you won't recognize what those answers are but you'll look back and go oh my god i can't believe you told us right at the beginning kind of thing yeah. or at least i think that's how it's going to work out <laughs> we'll see we'll see work in progress okay so vary the narration um basically there's two narrative voices if you like this is more of a voice thing um and there's the scenic voice which is basically just telling you what's going on mm-hmm. and there is the dramatic voice as well, which is concerned with the emotional content of a scene, um, yes. whether that be action or whether that be, you know, literal emotion. Yeah. And you need to be able to go back and forth between those two voices um, within your own voice, obviously, your own voice and style, because you do not want to be setting the scene by proclaiming it as though it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened. Battle, 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 and oh my god, and dread, and heartbreak, and Greek tragedy, etc. Because if you did that all the way through the book, that's exhausting. Yeah. Not just for you, but for the reader. Again, the same- imagine a, a real-life person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, again. Uh, and conversely, obviously, if you're using the scenic voice, you know, the the calmer, more reasoned, slightly more distant voice that's describing the scene, etc., um, with maybe like flickers of emotional content. You don't want to do that all the way through the book, otherwise the action scenes are just going to blend in with everything else. Yeah. So, variety. <laughs> variety. Sounds like we're asking a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> These are all things you, you know, if you're a newbie and you're not familiar with our podcast... Um, basically these are all things that you will learn to do it's a practice thing and i'm afraid nobody can really give you a shortcut yeah some of it will actually be instinctual yeah but one of the one of the great exercises to do is is to actually pick up one of your favorite books particularly a book that you're working with in the same genre of um and to read it as a writer so actually say 
make note of the techniques which are being used. A metaphor I often give my students, to the point that they're probably sick of it, is to imagine the difference between a regular person and an architect walking into a building. A regular person goes into a building and goes, this is a nice building. Um, this is nice, it's spacious, it's very pretty. An architect goes into the building and goes, this is a nice building, how did they make it work? Yeah. They will notice what the they will notice how the effect was created. So they won't go, oh, it's nice and light. They'll go, ah, they created arches and they did high windows in order to make it light, or they heightened the ceiling by half a centimeter, etc. You need to be able to start doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, something that you should do. It doesn't necessarily have to be everything, the entire book, but you should be reading your work out loud, either to someone else or to yourself or you can record yourself reading it and play sections back. Yes. If you're brave enough, you might even also ask someone else to read your work out loud. Now, this is particularly good as for the same reason that it's, it's awful. Um, because <laughs> you will get an idea of where people might actually be tripping over things, sentences, areas which are not working, or areas that drag, because you know your work so well that you might actually kind of subconsciously skip over those things whereas hearing someone else read it out loud can actually really help highlight how other people are going to interact with your work yeah absolutely um honestly when i first started this whole writing malarkey properly not just sort of as a hobby um the whole idea of reading what i'd written aloud was somewhat terrifying the idea of reading what i'd read aloud to somebody else was even worse yeah. As in, it was akin to the idea of standing up on a table in a restaurant and taking all my clothes off kind of thing. Yes. I did not want to do that. <laughs> but you, you, get, you will get over it. With, with practice, you will get past that. Because yeah. ultimately, they're your words. And w when you've practiced and you've done everything you possibly can, assuming you want them published, you need to, you need to get comfortable with, with the idea that people are going to read them. <laughs> you know, otherwise, what's the point? Yes. <laughs> And the other thing is that if you find that you're reading it and you're going, oh, God, uh, you know, it, I hate doing it because it sounds terrible. That's perfect. That's what you want. Because when you are doing that, you need to be in an area of hypercriticality. You need to be conscious of what is working and what isn't working. And being able to sort of notice those things is brilliant. So if you get up there and you're thinking, I'm uncomfortable I say get up there. I don't necessarily mean you have to get up on stage. But if you are feeling, ah, oh, this isn't working, then don't think of it as I've failed or this is bad. Think of it as, think of it as great. I can now start to see where areas can be improved. It's a positive thing, not a negative thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's look at a few devices to avoid the dreaded slow, saggy pace. Yes. So uh, one very clever thing to do um, is to collapse the time frame. Now that sounds very sci-fi. Sounds like <laughs> something you might hear in a Star Trek. <laughs> Captain, if we collapse the time frame, <laughs> brilliant Spock. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, sorry, just slight, <laughs> slighter. Uh, yeah jump um, there um but yeah so collapse the time frame um i mean jules this is something that you obviously do in um in revolt the king's knight yeah um the reason i basically i was given a very narrow window 
or in very small amount of words to tell this story in. Um, yeah. And this, obviously, you may not have read it, and that's fine. Revolt is set in 1381 during the time of the Peasants' Revolt here in... Or the Great Revolt here in England. Yes. Um, there was several different factions all vying for power. Um, there was a lot of political intrigue. There was a lot of mass discontent amongst the populace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, different... Not even classes of people because it was the serfs uprising against, the you know, the lords and masters kind of thing. Um, without going into all the details in the history, that's a huge amount of information to try and you know, drop on a reader who's not familiar with it. And not many people are familiar with the Peasants' Revolt. Yeah. Um, on top of which, I had to actually tell a story. I couldn't just go, here, here is the Peasants' Revolt. There you go, <laughs> you're welcome. I had to tell a story of someone set within that. So I, because I was commissioned to write these books, I he gave me 40,000 words. It's like, we really want just a novella, even though I think 40,000 is technically classified as a novel. I'm like, that's not a novel. 100,000 words is a novel. <laughs> 80,000 words is a novel, not 40,000. But anyway, I think overran by 5,000 words, so I did okay. But it's a lot, and I needed this main character to have a backstory that was relatable, and yet still have him having lots of action against this backdrop and still be historically accurate yeah and x number of other things so when we first meet gregory maudsley he's waking up after having had the shit beaten out of him in a trough outside a tavern yeah and he's had all his money stolen all he's got left is his war horse and his tunic which is basically his armor which is not in the greatest nick yeah and as we unfold a bit further he goes off to try and track down the people who basically robbed him and left him for dead outside this tavern and then we slip back in time slightly to him coming back to england having been a mercenary on the continent um to find that his brother and father have been dead for a year he's inherited everything and it turns out his brother's left the fine the the family estate in a massive financial hole yeah um and you go back and forth like that and basically what i've done is i've created the story and taken big chunks out of it because you don't need to know them as a reader what you need to know is the bits where we go back to and it was a balancing act of keeping both those timelines as compelling as each other despite the fact that one was very action-packed and the other one wasn't theoretically action-packed it was motion-packed yeah the fact is we didn't need to see his journey back to england no we just needed to see him back in england and why the money was important and how he was going to get his estate back. And, oh, God, there's a peasant's revolt going on. I'm yeah. going to get pulled into yet another civil war, yes. etc. And even though the publisher said, yeah, we like this, but we don't want you to do it for the further books, um, everyone was fine with it. I don't think anyone had any difficulty with the back and forth nature of telling this story set in a historical time period that way. I think everyone managed to keep up with it just fine. Yeah, and for me, I think that was a great way. And it, you didn't really need to do it for the others because for me, it was a great way of introducing the character and the world. And then once that had been established, you could just tell it in a linear way, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, when we say things like collapse the time frame, it's a case of you've got a limited amount of space to get this information across. And the reader needs to know this information, otherwise the story's not going to make sense. Yeah. So you take out everything that's non-essential. You don't need as Madeline said, endless scenes of this knight travelling from A to B, because those things are going to be, you know, not terribly interesting anyway. Or right. him girding his loins to um, 
to go through with this this marriage of convenience, which wasn't terribly convenient for him. Yes, absolutely. Uh, now, again, some people sort of mistake this for thinking, oh, well, like, you mean I can only do, I can't have any fun scenes, I can't have any anything like that, and that isn't the case um, because you might say, okay, well, physically this this isn't this isn't necessary, and and t- to be honest, we didn't need some of the scenes technically in um, in Revolt. We didn't really need Cuthbert. We didn't really need Chaucer or things like that um, in 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 the Knights um, in the King's Knight. Um, we didn't need some of the scenes with you know. I, I, sorry, I, I don't want to give spoilers. But <laughs> but, I think we've already spoiled it. Yeah, I think we've, we've already. But we didn't need some of these scenes, but um, for the for the physical story, but they added to the emotional story. So you can say, okay, well, actually, we don't physically need to see them sitting down and doing this. We don't need to do that in order to understand X, Y, Z. But actually, it builds their character, and this actually helps us to helps the reader to like the characters, to get on with the characters, to back the characters. So. When we talk about things being necessary, um, that also is emotionally necessary. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I will say that, yes, I've definitely seen bad examples of the back and forth timeline. Yeah. Um, And I've also seen bad examples of, you know, another way to do this is the dual timeline where you've got people in different times. Yes. And you're basically following two stories. I've seen good examples and bad examples of that. And the ones which tend to be bad examples of both kinds tend to be the ones where it's not really advancing either plot much it's just a case of you feel like the authors added it because they've done that bit of research and they want to include it and it doesn't really have a place in the narrative or they just want that scene yeah and i'm not saying you can't get away with the odd scene that's there just because you like it but you've got to be a bit choosy about which ones they are again it's the kill your darlings you might just send the scene to your friends (laughs) which we have done (laughs) we have absolutely done okay so unless the journey is the story remove the journey yeah this should be a no-brainer but the number of people who who actually they get bogged down writing it where they're like okay and now my my gang of thieves or whatever have got a journey all the way across the mountains and it's like six thousand miles and i don't i i've got fed up writing it like why are you writing the journey does something exciting happen on the journey uh no not really Okay, then skip the journey and just do a couple of lines of retrospective. Yeah. As in, it was a hard journey. One of the guys lost three of his toes from frostbite or whatever. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, if it's Lord of the Rings, then you can't skip the journey. The journey is a big part of it. (laughs) The journey is kind of the point. But then a lot of things happen on that journey, some of which I'm still not convinced really needs to be there. But you know what? A lot of people disagree with me about Tom Bombadil, so... (laughs) So there you go. Apparently I'm not a proper Tolkien fan because I don't like Tom Bombadil. <laughs> it's not that I don't like him, it's just that I don't see the point. But okay. Okay. Um, so another thing that you can do is use a song or a montage. This obviously is in film or in, uh, you know, sort of scripts and stuff like that uh, to kind of make things smaller. Um, so um, a great example of this is I'll make a man out of you in Mulan the whole training montage uh, where they go from being not very good to brilliant in one song see I love that because that is a masterclass in 
so many things that you need to be able to do in order to make a, a story work effectively. So yes, you've got the training montage. Generally, training is often like the journey whereby you don't want lots and lots of it. You just want the important parts because otherwise it's boring to read or watch. So that's why the montage in films is so popular. So you've got that element of it. Then you've got the fact that the song, song tells you an awful lot about the supposed culture <laughs> that this is taking place in. And the whole song is actually about challenging gender norms as well. So it's talking about theme as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's mastering all these things. If you listen to some of the lyrics of the song, um, I mean, the whole, the whole thing with um, Mulan is the fact that she's struggling to keep up because she's been raised as a fairly well-bred daughter, but, you know, one who's expected to do chores with, you know, minor farm animals and things. So she's probably strong for a girl, but she hasn't had the rigorous early training that boys have. Yeah. Also, she hasn't been through male puberty. That does tend to make a difference to your bone density and muscle structure. Yeah. Um, so there's that issue. And, you know, she's lagging behind. And it kind of deconstructs this sort of male war culture whereby everyone's kind of okay as long as there's one person who is lowest on the pecking order. And it starts mm-hmm. off being her. And she needs some encouragement. She needs a win. And it's only when she she outwits this particular challenge that she thinks, actually, I can do it. And by thinking that she can do it, she then starts outperforming the others. So it kind of takes away the whole sort of gender issue there at all. It does, yeah. Which and, is amazing. And the nice thing is that also it shows the the growth of the friendship as well. Yeah. Because they all be, go from being very competitive to actually being comrades, friends. Um, uh, and, yeah. and that's amazing. You, you get this whole emotional journey in a song. It, yeah, it... it combines so much and even when you get to the reprise where it's literally just one line of I'll make a man out of you and it's the three main friends dressed as women along with Milan yeah <laughs> and I've heard so many people criticize it and I'm like why are you criticizing it this song is literally taking gender norms and turning them inside out yeah very deliberately they're like oh yeah but it's men and they, they really feel like men I said yeah but they're secure enough that they'll dress like women in order to access something to do the thing that is right and yeah. it's the same with Mulan. Mulan doesn't stop being a girl just because she dresses as a boy. Yeah, I mean, and it, you can yeah. check out our episode on the heroine's journey where we go into yeah, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. So I love that song as an example just because it is, as I said, a masterclass in, in doing all these things that you need to do. Yeah. Theme, story, emotional journey. Brilliant. A- action as well, to be honest. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, yeah, tell the reader only what they need to know, as we've said. Don't follow a character through their entire day in mundane detail. You know, I really do have to stress this one, because I was talking about Fifty Shades of Grey earlier. We know Fifty Shades of Grey is a cheap knockoff of Twilight. Yeah. And obviously it's inferior, or rather, obvious to me it's inferior, but I know a lot of other people have liked it, so I'm going to try and swallow that, Um, because I could be wrong. Um, But let's be honest, the first Twilight book we do kind of exhaustively follow Bella through her entire day. We've got scenes where she's brushing her teeth or doing her hair. She is thinking as well. Yeah. But it's stuff that we don't really need to see. You know, unless something happens while she's brushing her teeth, um, then it's kind of, we we need to just assume she's brushed her teeth because it's the sort of thing that we'd all be familiar with, hopefully. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, the fact that it's in there is kind of a testament to how well the rest of the book is actually written by co- it just generally how compelling the story is for many people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because otherwise the public should have been like, oh, this is boring, <laughs> throw it over your shoulder, and then look at the runaway success it had. So it's noticeable that in the following books, we do not exhaustively follow the main character throughout her entire day. And honestly, I have to say, when I first wrote I Belong to the Earth, I started doing the same thing. So I think this is a new author thing where you're yeah. like, I must explain everything or the reader won't understand. But it's like, the reader will understand because the reader is as clever as you are and they know that person is going to get up in the morning, wash the face, brush the teeth, maybe have a shower, maybe have a shower in the evening or whatever. So unless it's important to the plot for that reason, you don't need to show it. Yeah, absolutely. It's more unusual, really, to have someone get up and go, oh, I'm not going to brush my teeth because I've never brushed my teeth kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> But even then, we probably don't want to see it. <laughs> so, another one is the very famous um, telling instead of showing. Yeah. Yeah, big that, time. Yeah, big time. <laughs> now, it's the thing is that, obviously, there's the big rule, which is show, don't tell. And yes, that is very, very important. There are times, however, where actually, really, it is better to just tell. Sometimes just a little bit of information is fine. Um, once again, if you think about how we interact with the world, let's say you're watching a film, or actually you're just even walking around outside, how do you know what is going on? There isn't a narrator who is telling you exactly everything that's <laughs> happening, is it? I really hope there isn't a narrator. <laughs> yeah. If there is, then I think you maybe you need to seek some help. Yes. Um, you are you gain information through observation, um, and through that observation, um, through essentially uh, sort of putting everything together, deduction. Um, but every now and again, there will be times where you cannot just deduce something from based on what you can see. Sometimes you'll have to have someone who tells you something. Sometimes you will have to sit and read something. And so it should be the same logic when it comes to writing your story. If there is stuff which can be deduced, then allow your reader to see it, to experience it, to understand by, by being shown what's happening. But if you actually also are, you know, particularly if you're going for something which is meant to be quite pacey and stuff like that, you might decide that instead of sort of putting a whole paragraph to showing a particular thing, you might just sort of actually say, actually, in this moment in time, one sentence will do where I will just tell them what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the second King's Night book, there is a point where a famous official is being hanged probably unjustly, although he wasn't exactly a great guy. Um, I could have gone off into a really, really long, sort of very drawn out description of what it felt like to be hanged under those circumstances, but it wouldn't have made sense because that wasn't the point of your character being hanged, obviously. So instead, I've got this one sentence explaining the difference, and it's that a short drop hanging does not break the neck of the victim. It is instead a slow death by suffocation. Yeah. Which tells you everything you need to know, I think. Because it, you know, later when we hanged people, we calculated the distance with the rope and things like that so that it would break the neck of the victim the minute their feet dropped. Yes. But a short drop hanging is someone shoves a stool out from under your feet and then you, you slowly choke to death. Yeah. Which, you know, is a more painful way to go. Yes. And can last a long time. Yes. So, yeah. 
yes, you should absolutely be trying to show more than you are telling, but actually you do need to balance the telling as well. Yeah, there are some times when it's fine to just tell someone something. I do find historical fiction is very rife for this. So things like, um, well, it's things like Gregory feeling sullied by an action and craving even a, a cake of the small black peasant soap rather than the specially milled um, soap from from abroad. Um, I haven't gone, that's not exactly how I phrased it, but it's literally the fact that like, oh, hang on a minute, he's going to bath health and he wants soap. I've, I've established the fact that they did actually wash quite regularly, probably more regularly than we wash. Exactly, yes. Um, and it's, you know, the difference between saying... Uh, you observe uh, one of the one of the great ones I like to give is you can say it was raining outside, or you could say rain pelted against the window. Now one is longer than the other, but when I say it's raining outside, lots of different things can come to mind. You could think, is it that misty rain? Is it dark? Is it etc. When I say rain pelted against the window, um, you first of all know now that there is a window. You get an idea of what the rain kind of is like. If it's pelting, you know it's going to be quite hard. And you get a sound effect. So it, it creates a great sense of environment, even if um, it is, you know, it, it might be a little bit uh, longer. Um, however, that you might find in certain cases... Uh, where you just have to basically explain why a character sort of has to grab an umbrella or why a character had an umbrella which they're using in the middle of a battle or something like that. Um, you know, you might have just said it was um, it was raining this morning, so he grabbed his umbrella. And that's fine too. It's just about balancing them um, and about considering where when is the moment where you need to have description and when is the moment where you need to just give information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a final thing to definitely avoid, to avoid a slow, saggy pace, is uh, avoiding info dump. So make sure you drip feed information and imply more than you actually just give. Yes. Um, let the reader work stuff out for themselves as well. I mean, a, a great example of this is Garth Nix with his Old Kingdom series. That Those books kind of have a lot of world building although one side of the wall is very much based on sort of an edwardian type britain even though it's not britain and the other side of the wall is very much more sort of like based on a medieval europe type situation yeah um so you've kind of got the vague ideas there but then he introduces you to this huge magical alphabet of sigils called charter marks mm -hmm. without actually really telling you what they are he infers it in the text and as you read on you kind of you know you know that if you understand this alphabet you can create new spells and things with it and it, it's it's really clever how he does it he when you really look at the number of words i mean yeah okay <laughs> basically scratch someone with an interest in science and you'll end up with a statistician at some point so it's me sort of like i'll take a section of the book and i worked <laughs> out descriptively how much, how many words he devoted to description compared to character and action compared to dialogue. Despite the fact that the feeling that the world building was incredibly rich and immersive, it had the smallest number, the fewest words devoted to it. So you really can tell an awful lot with very little, very few words. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, what have, what have been some of kind of your challenges with mastering pace? Do you think, Jules? Um, honestly, I would never claim that I'd actually mastered pace, but I know <laughs> generally know when it's not working. Um, I would say certainly the first one was as a newbie writer, where I was so worried that what I was saying would not be understood because I wasn't telling it in a very, a very good way. Mm. That I kind of described everything, even stuff that was boring that didn't need to be there. Um, so the initial draft of I Belong to Earth has a lot more of and doing very mundane things that add nothing to the plot, and that that all got winnowed out later. Or most of it got winnowed out. Um, but other things I would say, it's weird because I've had people who say that I've written too fast, mm-hmm. and other people who said. The writing pace is too slow. And honestly, yeah, I'm like, I don't think either of you's wrong. I just don't think I'm what you were looking for. Um, so again, that that's that preference thing again. But for me now, it's kind of, I'm going to, I think I've come to the conclusion that I need to put more in at the beginning. And weirdly, I then add more as I'm doing the rewrite, but I end up taking out a lot of the stuff that people don't need to know. Yeah. If that makes sense. So I tend to edit up. So my word count will go up when I rewrite and edit. Um, But usually because I've put in things that you actually do need to know and remove some stuff that you don't need to know. Yeah. Um, Whereas mine tends to go down. Yes, I do also end up adding new things. But I think that I've... Over time, I've, I've become a lot more conscious of what it means to be concise and how you can be concise. Um, And that has had a a massive impact in terms of pace. And I think it is just, it's practice. You know, there's a lot of stuff now that I I, I feel like I've learned just by merit of of just writing lots and lots and lots and lots. Um, Which, again, you can't, that's not something that you can um, just sort of pick up. Some people might have a kind of a natural sense for it. Um, I've definitely seen people who do have a natural sense for it, but it really has just been a, a matter of, of sort of learning. And again, I look at some of my old work um, and they drag. It definitely drags in places where yeah. I've tried, I've over-explained things. Um, I've sort of had rambling sentences, etc. cetera. Um, and I've not, I've not paced it well in terms of how I sort of, did the intermitted um, action and and sort of the slower moments. I do know that sort of one thing that I kind of have played by in terms of pace was always thinking that a book should slowly speed up. And that kind of happens naturally anyway, particularly with fantasy, because by the end you don't need to spend nearly as much time explaining the world, because at this point... People know who the characters are, they know what the world is like, so you can just concentrate on the rest of it rather than having to slow things down a little bit to sort of build. Um, yeah. And but, you are usually running towards a crescendo of some kind. Exactly, yeah. There is going to be some kind of crescendo. So, yeah. I Again, I'm the same as you. I wouldn't say that I've mastered it um, by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm much more conscious of it now, and it, it is just something that I am continuing continuously working on. And part of being conscious of it is knowing where 
where I have weaknesses and therefore being able to edit those when I get round to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. Uh, Speaking of pacing, I think we timed that quite well. (laughs) We did, yes. Um, So it is actually the end of the episode. Uh, And before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you have got one for us. Yes, I just finished the fabulous audiobook recording of Divine Rivals by Rebecca Ross, which is possibly one of the most original fantasy, certainly light and slash semi-cosy fantasy novels I've read. And it was just absolutely charming. It was really, really lovely. Basically, the setting is this quasi-Edwardian-style era. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got two... Basically, two young journalists, Iris Winnow and Roman Kitt, and they're both vying for the place of columnist with this newspaper. Um, however, both of them have problems with their own homes. Um, Kitt actually comes from a very, very wealthy family, but he's being forced into an arranged marriage. Right. And um, Iris has problems with her mother. Um, her brother went off to war. That's the other thing you must note. There is a divine war going on where two gods had a falling out and now two different armies are basically fighting each other over this this entire issue. Mm -hmm. But the gods are actually involved. Her brother had a vision of the goddess and the goddess told him to go to war. Um, So he left her um, with her alcoholic mother, um, which was, you know, it kind of ruined an awful lot of things for Iris. And she hasn't heard from her brother since. So every night she writes him a letter on her grandmother's old typewriter. Even though she's got nowhere to send them, she just needs the catharsis of writing to her brother. Yeah. Um, But then she started stacking the letters that she'd written in her wardrobe and she noticed the next day that they were gone and nobody else had moved them. So she wrote one and then put it in there and checked again and it was gone five minutes later and no one had been in the room to open the wardrobe. So she hoped that they were going to her brother and that somehow he would magically manage to get one back to her. Initially, she thinks the wardrobe's magic. And then eventually, a letter comes through from her saying, this is not Forrest, as in it's not your brother. And so she's she's quite offended. And it's like, well, why did you wait so long to tell me you weren't my brother if you've been getting my letters? Um, it'll come as no surprise to the audience, especially if you've seen that rather dicey 1990s film, um, You've Got Mail, with... Mm-hmm. Meg Ryan et al. Um, that the other person writing the letters is in fact Roman Kitt. Uh, Roman knows that the letters are from Iris, but he conceals the fact that it's him writing back to her. The two of them set up a correspondence with each other, and a friendship starts to bloom between them, despite the fact that at work they hate each other. <laughs> anyway, they end up both going off to the front to be war correspondents. And um, hilarity, heartbreak, and um, <laughs> and a, a general really, shenanigans. <laughs> a really sweet rivals to to lovers love story kind of unfolds. It's really great. I can't wait for the second book. It was just brilliant. Aww, that sounds really good. Okay, definitely going on my list. <laughs> yes, it is a really good audiobook as well, in my opinion. <laughs> 
All right. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening. Uh, let us know what you guys think about Pace. Has any of this been useful? Do you think we've missed anything? Can you think of any books which are paced particularly well? Um, do get in contact with us. Um, and all that's left to be said is thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>